Shamoy, welcome back. Become a H Hour patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Get all of the podcasts in your inbox before anybody else gets them. You get them ahead of the general public. You get invites to exclusive events. You get invites to monthly Zoom calls, sometimes with previous guests. And you also get freebie giveaways and stuff of being a patron. H Hour patrons. Yes, a niche core of super people. That's what they are. Be a HR patron. Be a super person. Patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Or go to the website, as in the podcast website, charliecharlie1.com, and click the button, become a patron. Sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group provide defense and security solutions for a complex world. Founded in 1982, Aardvark has established itself as a major player in its field, renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation, working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators, for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform that they have or provide conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark know that to have a truly lasting positive impact, their technologies must be cost effective. So they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with the core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. The Aardvark Group are headquartered in the UK and have offices in the USA and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They develop technically innovative solutions which support a number of critical sectors. Their portfolio of solutions is extensive, with all elements fully interoperable and capable of being integrated into your existing operational platforms. The Aardvark Group also have an online shop where they provided a discount code exclusively for HOUR listeners. That discount code is H-H-O-U-R. Enter that at checkout when you go to their shop to buy... For example, Aardvark, mer- Aardvark merchandise or Aardvark kit and equipment you can buy for on the man or on the woman or on the person operating in post-conflict zones such as very convenient pocket kits, pocket first aid kits or trauma kits like drop leg stuff they've got. you love it. Aardvark.group is the website. H-H-O-U-R is the discount code. Thank you, Aardvark Group, for sponsoring the podcast. Also sponsoring the podcast are the Development Society. If you want to surround yourself with like-minded people who enjoy fizz, care about others, and want to improve themselves on a daily basis, DevSoc is the place to go. Not only all of those things, but there is a healthy amount of stoicism floating around, being sprinkled on in the year of the Development Society. DevSoc for short, the Development Society is a community of like-minded dudes who want the best for each other. From insanely cool products to weekly Zoom, yoga sessions and more, there is tons to get involved with with the Development Society. The best way to keep up to date with them is to sign up to their Daily Waves newsletter on their website. Their website is devsoc.shop. Scroll down, you will see a little box, an opportunity to put in your email address for the Daily Waves newsletter. No spam, 
no bullshit, just useful info, useful invites to events, useful gen from DevSock, straight to your inbox. They also have a shop where you can go and buy DevSock merchandise. Very cool. This is not normal stuff. They have a range of different things. I love the variety of their products. I loved their mugs that they did. The bam, they were bamboo. Bamboo? We're bamboo mugs. John Deere style baseball caps, whole host of stuff. And the stuff is not available all of the time. You need to check into the shop regularly, right? Because they only make certain things available at certain times. They like to keep us on our toes. So go to devsock.shop to t- check it out. Uh, check the shop out, check the merchandise out, and most importantly, to sign up for the Daily Waves newsletter. That's it. They would say, stay wavy. So stay wavy. And while you're staying wavy, go and sign up for that newsletter. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes have got their next event coming up very, very, very soon. In fact, they've got two events coming up very, 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 very soon in January, okay? We're right at the end of 2021 now. Those events coming up in January. you got to keep a tab on what they're doing. Rugby for Heroes organise... Rugby for Heroes raise money for military charities. They do this through organising fundraising events predominantly revolving around the game the culture the lifestyle the excellence that is rugby and of course things associated with rugby like beer drinking alcohol drinking they've expanded their their um, scope of events over the last couple of years to include more things than just the original rugby for heroes festival that they kicked off with back in 2009 now in addition to the rugby for heroes festival they also do supper clubs they also organize beer and gin festivals awesome events i first went to my i went to my first rugby for heroes event i think it was 2018 i've been to every single event since and i intend to go every go to every single event in the future and touch wood i'll be able to do that they were formed in the wake of the death of private joe whitaker who was sadly killed on operations serving in afghanistan with the parachute regiment in 2008 Eight. And since Rugby for Heroes formed in 2009, they have raised in excess of £114,000 for military charities, which is an incredible amount of money, considering they are a very, very small organisation in terms of management behind it, a core group of individuals who are behind what is being done, headed by the incredible, the awesome, the, uh, the inimitable Michael Valance. Like I said, the next events coming up in January. I will be at both of them. There is a supper club coming up and there is a rugby-oriented event in Hereford coming up, the details of which are currently on a down low. I may have already given away too much information, but I'm sure Michael will let me know and wrap my knuckles if I have. But it's too late. It's out there. So get on to rugbyforheroes.org and follow Rugby for Heroes on social media at rugby4heroes to get the gen on what's coming up. And I'll see you at one or both of the events in January. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Combat Cigars. Combat Cigars is the only British military veteran-owned combat cigar company. Combat Cigar Company? Cigar Company in existence right now. It is the only one in recent decades. I don't think there's ever been one before anyway. Holy military veteran-owned. I am one-third of Combat Cigars. I'm very, very glad to be a part of it because it's really exciting. It's really cool. It's really happy. Combat Cigars have got... Three blends at the moment. Actually, there's a fourth blend coming in. The first three are Robusto size. The 
They are suitable for con cigar smoking connoisseurs or if you're brand new to cigar smoking, these will suit you. We've got the Oath of Allegiance blend, we've got the Victory, and we've got the Last Post. And we've got a four cigar coming in, which is a longer cigar, but it's narrower in gauge. It's called, it's the size of it's called like a Churchill short, right? And this one is called the Center of Mass. It's going to be in, in time for Christmas. Combat Cigars, we source our cigars from Colombia, from a family who has been rolling cigars for over 200 years. And we are the only people they roll for in the UK. And the cigars we get from them are only rolled for us. The cigars that we get, you cannot get anywhere else. They are ours. There's no copying us. There's no mimicking us. We're combat cigars. When you are thinking of getting a cigar for an event, or getting a cigar, yeah, for any event. Maybe it's a dining in. Maybe it's a dining out. Maybe it's a platoon piss-up. Maybe it's a ship piss-up. Maybe you've just come off tour. Maybe you're going away on tour and you want some cigars to bring with you. Think combat cigars combatcigars.co.uk is where you want to go to take a look like i said wholly veteran owned that is who we are three snipers behind it all uh all of us out now and um all of us enjoying the journey that is combat cigars and you will too at combat cigars on social media combatcigars.co.uk that's it onto the podcast my guest today is steve owen so the, when we recorded this podcast is the first time I met Steve however I did uh, learn a lot about him when he took part in the same documentary as I did recently called Surviving Helmand uh, a BBC Wales commissioned documentary that was released in the week running up to Remembrance Sunday and um, I still haven't met him well I still hadn't met him when the, when the documentary came out but um, his story is an incredible one uh, he's an amputee he served with one Royal Welsh Fusiliers he, um, yeah, he got injured in Afghanistan, getting blown up when he was in, in a jackal uh, on uh, on Operic. And he is now a fundraiser. He's he recently, in fact, you know, I'm going to stop waffling about it. You need to listen to the podcast. It's proper good. I enjoy talking to Steve. we we'll definitely do this again in the future. He's a good guy. This is the HR Podcast. My name is Hugh Kia, and my guest today is Steve Owen. Enjoy. HR podcast, mega, mate. Um, documentary went out on documentary. What do you call? What do they call it? Go yeah, on. it was a documentary. Documentary yeah. Went, yeah. went out on Tuesday. Yeah. Saw you on that. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're in the fucking studio. Yeah. <laughs> mega. Nice to have in you. Run uh, one Royal Welsh. Yeah. Right. You are. You're. What's your position with Woody's Lodge? Um, I'm the West and Mid Wales project manager. For Woody's Lodge, yeah, and uh, I, let's, I want to carry on the conversation we're having outside yeah. before this about um, the fucking hundred odd mile extravaganza that you 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 <laughs> so yeah. decided with one leg to walk and well one and a bit legs to walk hundred and thirteen miles was it? Yeah, that was that was the plan. Um, so it, it started off really um, as as I do, just thinking in my head, what am I going to do? Um, so it started off um, applying to set a world record. So it was going to be a 24-hour challenge um, and the furthest distance walked as an above-knee amputee um, over 24 hours. Has anything like that been undertaken by anyone else before? Yeah, it has. Um, the, the, the record was 60 kilometres in 24 hours. Um, so me being me, 
um, I applied to Guinness World Records um, to set to sort of um, set the record, um, and it went from there. And during the time I was waiting for obviously the application to go through and everything like that, um, the Afghan withdrawal happened, and um, obviously there was a lot of bad press, a lot of bad media. You know, I, I served out there you know, along with you know yourself and thousands of other guys um, and girls and girls. And uh, <laughs> got to get that one in, um, but and guys used to be girls, and girls used to be guys. Yeah, that's that's um, different topic, but <laughs> yeah, equality and all that. But and there was there was people just saying like these guys, you know, fought for nothing, lost limbs for nothing, died for nothing, and I was like, <laughs> it wound me up. I was sitting there and it and it wound me up and what wound you up? Just just this, you know, everybody saying like you know they died for nothing and things like that and you know it was coming from guys that hadn't even been out there, hadn't even experienced that that environment, you know. And I thought, right, I'll do something to to remember these guys and to just get it out there. Do you know what I mean? So. I, me being me, um, put it straight on social media, right, I'm going to walk 457 laps of a 400 metre running track. One one lap for each for each guy that, and girl that passed away in um, in Afghan. So it went from there, really. Um, I posted it out on social media and then it got to about four weeks before the actual event and I realised what I'd done <laughs> and the severity of it. I did the maths in my head and I was like, oh, oh right, okay. <laughs> This is this is going to be hard. So back in back in sort of um, June, I'd already I'd already done another event. Um, I walked 85 miles from from Barry to Llandesil, um, where where Woody's Lodge West is based. Over what period of time? Over over seven days. So I did about 12 mile a day because um, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, during the time I've been an amputee, which is, which was five years last week. Um, I've always tried to push myself a little bit further every time I do something. Um, and it always gets a bit more extreme and I always end up, you know, doing something. So the 85 miler happened. And the idea behind that was to push myself mentally to see how far, you know, I, I like to hit the reset every year. So push myself to breaking point and then see how it goes. But it didn't actually happen that way. I actually got stronger as I went on. <laughs> so it was... Um, yeah, it was it was a bit of a strange experience. So, fifth of November came, um, and ended up setting off on the on the Carmarthen running track, um, do, doing the laps. Um, I've got to say, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. You didn't stop, did you? You kept, kept just kept going. Yeah, um, stopping for like five ten minutes just to have some food and so have have some water and you know between. Between five o'clock on the Friday and midnight, we'd banged in 18 miles. Do you know what I mean? So um, we were going at a good pace, probably a little bit fast to begin with. Um, I think if I'd have gone a bit slower at the start, I probably would have, you know, been all right a bit, a bit <coughs> further on. But as as it went, we got to five o'clock, so we were 24 hours in now, and I'd pretty much doubled the world record. On 5 p.m. on the Saturday. On 5 p.m. on Saturday. Um, I'd pretty much doubled the world record then over 24 hours, but I ha I couldn't do it officially. 
I couldn't get all the all the things signed off and that purely because it was just too much admin to sort out. So by the time the application for the world record had come in, I was only two weeks away from from the event. So all of the admin that had it, and they, it was ridiculous. Like, they, like they wanted like to film the whole twenty four hours. Um, they wanted um, two independent independent witnesses to log each lap and put a time down for each lap. You needed two specific stopwatches um, and a third one for you to carry. Oh, it was just. And it just went on and on and on and on and on the list of stuff. So I was like, you know, it's going to take me away from from what I want to achieve. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I know. And the guys that were there knew what I'd done. So, um, yeah, we did nearly probably just under 120 kilometers in 24 hours. So, um, yeah, that was hard going. And then from that point, then my body started shutting down. Um, oh, the 5 p.m. kind of yeah so everything started hurting cramping up 26 hours in then two hours after five well about seven o'clock on the saturday i felt my foot break so and that was my good foot how so, did you feel it what happened so i was just i was walking and i could feel the, the foot well, swelling. what do you mean is your good foot your other one yeah. is plastic isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> titanium <laughs> actually <good> <laughs> yeah my biological foot <laughs> yeah. um yeah, I could just feel it swelling and swelling in my trainer um, to the point where I had to take, I nearly had to cut the trainer off, off that I had on <coughs> to put on another trainer, which was already broken in. It was at the end of its life sort of thing. So I put that on and then that just kept swelling and I just felt I just felt a snap in my foot. Um, but funny enough, when, when that snap happened, the pain went. It was, it was, it, it was a, a bit of a surreal experience. Um, and yeah, things from that point then just got harder and harder and harder until the point where we had to start doubling the names that we were putting on the board because I couldn't, I, you know, I hundred percent wanted to finish it, but it wasn't real. I'd still be walking now if I, if we hadn't done what we did. So, um, yeah, we, we carried on walking. Um, we got to about four o'clock in the morning and I thought I was going to die. Um, sat in the sat in the chair and everything just started cramping up from my from my sort of toes to my to my chest to my head to my neck. I was getting pains across my chest, and I was like, "This is where I'm going to take my last breath." And I was fully committed by this point. <laughs> you know, I wasn't I wasn't I, I like I, I briefed the guys up before I started off, and I said, "I'm not leaving the track unless it's on a stretcher." <laughs> and I got defib pads attached to my chest, so um, they knew they knew what I was like, and I'm I'm quite headstrong, so. Yeah, at that point then I thought, right, I've got to move. I've got to get up and I've got to do something. So got up and it took me 45 minutes to walk 400, 400 meters. <laughs> yeah, I was in I was in a bad way. Um, so next time I sat down then I started hallucinating because of the lack of sleep. What were you seeing? Oh, the, the gazebo that I was sat in was trying to eat me basically. It was like, I, I like nodded off for like 30 seconds and I, I, I jumped up and I was like, shit and the, the gazebo was all over my face but it wasn't if there was a camera there they would have seen me fighting <laughs> fighting ghosts so <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite funny um yeah then we just we just cracked on and got to sort of like nine o'clock in the morning then and people started turning up um and it was uh, it was like i had like a third wind and i but everybody was like saying are you okay <laughs> Because like 
my my eyes were all bloodshot my body my my posture had all changed and it was like um yeah so the missus turned up then and she was like she was like are you, are you sure you're going to be able to do this last lap and i was like i'm doing it whether <laughs> whether you like it or not so yeah, I got to about eleven o'clock then, and we we did the last lap. Um, oh, on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, yeah. So we we started five p.m. on the Friday, and ended up finishing eleven half eleven on the on the Sunday morning, which was um, yeah, got got a bit emotional. Um, when you get to the stage, you hallucinated, mate. Yeah, I I remember the first time I got that tired. I I don't think many people ever experience that level of tiredness that you hallucinate, like yeah. properly hallucinate without the, without the need for drugs. Yeah, <laughs> I was in. It was a. You don't think back now. I think how did I think that was real? It was a. We were on a defense defensive exercise. First one been done in fucking decades, by the, by um by. Three power thing, like properly defensive, big defensive. Ten days long, we dug in stage three trenches, yeah. the works, and it was like day two. We just been we tab massive tab in, been digging for nonstop. Anyway, got uh, we got uh, stood two, and it was roasting, boiling hot. I can't remember where we were doing it. it Might have been Salisbury, roasting, boiling hot. It was boiling hot day, and that, you know it, it's hot. And you're trying to stay awake, and I looked across to the trench to my right. And the session commander, a guy called Screech, and he's and he's we couldn't get out. It was just fucking boiling. The sun is beating down. I looked across the <laughs> Screech, and he's there, stood too, with his rifle in his shoulder, looking over the top of the parapet. But he had a Carlsberg beer umbrella above him, <laughs> like giving him a shade. I thought, you fucking wanker. And then I realised that's it's not real. That's not real. Yeah. That's not real. Yeah, fucking hell. Yeah, one one of the one of the lads, Ty, he was walking with us. He, um, I think this was about four o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> And he jumped all of a sudden. I went. I went to grab something, and I, I was like, "You're right." He goes, "He goes, the fucking lines jumping out on me on the running track." <laughs> and then we just started laughing, and it was like, "The, the shit's just got real." The, you know, everybody's starting to hallucinate now. You know, uh, but fair play to them two guys. You, you know, Derek and Ty. They they walked with me like the whole way. You know, so they they were in the hurt locker just as much as I was. Yeah, fair play. Yeah. What did it feel? What was it like when you actually finished with that sense of accomplishment and the emotions you mentioned just now? Yeah, it was it, it was a bit of a strange one. I'd left I left my regiment to the last to do to, to walk the last lap. By this point, we were putting like four names on the board, you know. So, um, I did I did my la the regiment as a one, you know, remembering the guys that we lost and and things like that. And that I wasn't I wasn't sure how I was going to react. Um, you know, I had a, a, a couple of tears running down my face and a, a lump in my throat. And, um, yeah, I put the last name on the board and it just... Then then the severity of what I've just done sunk in. Um, but, yeah, and, and I was adamant that I was going to lay a reef at the bottom, the bottom of the board. So it did that. And just the amount of support of the guys turning up um, was was amazing, just seeing people... You know, giving up, giving up their Sunday really, just to come and come and cheer me on on the last on the last lap. You know, some of our trustees they're organising um, a cycle ride from um, Cardiff to Paris next year, um, and they used one of their training days to come down and see me. So they cycled from Bridgend down to Carmarthen to see me, which was which again was it was humbling more than anything. Um, but I, I guess I'm still in the euphoric stage of it, really. You know, after completing the event, because I, 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 I can't quote this, but 
you know the amount of mileage I did as an as an above knee amputee in in one go I don't think has ever been done ever before. So um, I'm still trying to process that. Um, I couldn't fit my leg on two days in a row. Tried, but it wouldn't it wouldn't go in. My my stump had swelled that much. I just couldn't physically get it in the socket, and um, I couldn't get my trainer on the other foot either. So. <laughs> Stuck to your Crocs. Yeah, well, I couldn't even get it in a Croc. Why yeah. do you own Crocs? I was joking. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, extreme measures, break glass in an emergency. <laughs> yeah, it's something about when you do stuff like that. <clears throat> I did a, <clears throat> nothing like you did. I did. We did a little memorial walk, I mean little, over the Malverns. Um, and that's why I asked you what it was like when you finished, finished like the emotional side of it. We did a memorial walk for a guy who took his own life a few years back. And... Um, Final way through it, you know, and then finished. And as soon as, as soon as we finished, as soon as we finished, it burst into tears. <clears throat> Couldn't control it. Burst into tears. Like, were you saying it? So <clears throat> it wasn't so much, it wasn't, uh, not the accomplishment, because it, it wasn't, like I said, we weren't doing anything like what you, what you did. It was just, it was the, the, what's the word? What it symbolized. Yeah. You know, a remembrance thing. Yeah. You know? And, uh, or, and and plus when you're drained physically like that and mentally yeah. I think when with those kind of emotions when they take over they just hit you for six oh yeah bigger. It's, it's that phys- I, I went through three phases on that walk I went through the physical barrier into the mental phase and I wanted the physical barrier to come sooner than the <coughs> mental phase but the physical barrier didn't come come till later and I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting it because I thought I was going to be in the hurt locker a lot sooner than I was. Um, and then went into sort of like the mental mental phase of it then. Um, and then it got it got to the point where I came out of that and I was just coasting. And that was, I, I think it was the most dangerous part of that because you're not fully aware of what's going on, you know. And like I was saying, I was sat there and everything started cramping up. And I think if I had a bit more mental capacity at that time, I probably would have... I, you know, I wanted to stop. I wanted to throw the towel in. And I remember sitting on the chair just, like, completely fucked. And I looked up at the board and I'd just seen all these names on there. I thought, you can't you can't just throw the towel so in. So you now. were ticking off a name on each lap? Then, yeah, so so basically about two weeks before, I'd printed off all of the guys' names that passed away um, in, in Afghan and cut them out, laminated them all, cut them out again. And then we basically we had a, a full sheet of plywood um, with Velcro strips on, and we carried the name with us and put it on the board. Oh, right. So it you was were carrying all the names round with you as you were walking, then yeah. each lap, yeah, you'd stick one on the board. Yeah. So as as we would walk, we would call out, call out the name, and then c- carry it with us and put it on the board. Holy then. shit! Yeah. So it was. Um, so every lap meant something. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of people said, "Oh, was it boring just going round in circles?" you know, for two days straight. And I was like, not really. I didn't even, I, to be honest with you, I didn't even look at my surroundings because I knew it was going to be, you know, monotonous, walking around a 400-meter track 457 times. So by carrying the guys' names with us, it was it was like a fresh lap every time. You know I mean, because we're doing it for that person. Um, I did lose my, my, my rag a little bit when we had to start doubling the names up because... My, in you know me personally, I I was like, oh, fucking, you, you know, you failed at this. But realistically, you know, we still put all the names on the board. We still, you know, and we still, 
you know, it was 400 for 457. That was what we called the event. So it meant something. Do you know what I mean? You, you know, when I was still there at the end and I still put the names on the board. So, yeah, it got a bit... Um, Got a bit emotional, but you know sometimes you have to you have to be realistic. Well, yeah, still like I said, <coughs> it's an amazing achievement. Everyone got yeah. representation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, did the did you have to battle with any of the uh, the local running running uh, the running teams and stuff? Going <laughs> no. and train it? No. The <laughs> so, did so they close it off you for the whole time? Did they? Pretty much. Yeah. They kind of like there was supposed to be a football match in the middle of the in the middle of the rugby track um, uh, running track. Sorry. Um, but they managed to like postpone it or move it somewhere else. I I, I was looking forward to that because it would have been something <laughs> to look at. But it got it, it it got rough on the Saturday because about seven o'clock in the morning it started <laughs> raining and didn't and didn't stop till seven o'clock that night. So yeah, you know what it's like. You just piss wet through and you're just like, what have I done? You know, and <laughs> yeah, keep thinking about the end goal. Keep thinking about. And another thing I I do when I'm like doing stuff like that. I, I try and visualize the finish. So if I visualize the finish, that's what I, that's where I want to go. So I know, I know it's bad news if I can't visualize the finish. So I was like, just thinking, thinking this time tomorrow it's gonna be it's gonna be finished. It's gonna be all over. But yeah, it was um, <laughs> it was hardcore. Yeah, good effort, mate. Good effort. Are you um, are you fully recovered now? Um, just I'm just suffering a little bit with the fatigue. Because I haven't really been able to sleep properly since, because my my body clock's all messed up now. You know, I think after after twenty four hours, you know, you can kind of, you know, twenty four hours or less, you can kind of cope with. But anything over that, your body clock gets thrown out because it doesn't know when you should be sleeping or when you when when you shouldn't be. But it's a bit I'm, it's a bit weird at the minute because come five o'clock, I'm absolutely chinned, <laughs> and then by eight o'clock, I'm awake again. And it's like, oh, come on. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, that's the only thing I'm suffering a little bit now with is is fatigue. Are you back into wheelchair rugby now? No, it's it's a it's a bit of a funny one. Like with wheelchair rugby, I haven't been able to go to training quite well at all this season yet because I'm working so much. So, it's um, I played a couple of tournaments. So, been managed to sp- find some time on the weekends to go and play some tournaments, but. Yeah, in the week is a bit of a nightmare to try and get off training. It's a violent sport, that. Yeah. I've watched it a few times. Yeah, I've, never really not even, I've seen it on, yeah, I've watched it on TV a few times. Flipping violent, <laughs> mate. You get some speed in them chairs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> What's the rules? What's the rules? Because you just smash into each other, can't yeah, you? Yeah, so it's, it's like murder ball. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, but you can't really call that anymore, so so they call it rugby instead. But it's more, <laughs> it's more like a crossover between ice hockey and American football. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Is it, so, but what? What? So, what's different? How does it work scoring wise? Is it the same scoring as uh, normal rugby? No. So it's just it's just like a goal. So you get you get a point for every time you you, you cross the line and and things like that. It's a very complicated sport, Why like it? with the rules and things. <coughs> so on. there's different. So like you have an over and back rule, for instance. So if you carry the ball over the halfway line, you can't bring it back over the halfway line. So it's a turnover then. So you've got. 40 seconds to score the goal but you've got to get out of your half within 12 seconds so and you've got to bounce every 10 
it's it's a, it's quite a lot of information to take in while you're while you're getting I'm confused s- already. Yeah, <laughs> you should have seen me on my first first session. <laughs> I was like just going around in circles. <laughs> yeah. Do you have to have a special wheelchair for that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I was quite lucky. I got um, I got sponsored by Blessma. Um, so they 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 paid um, for three quarters of the chair, and I and I stumped up the rest of it. Um, but the club had um, you 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 can use the club's chairs as well. Um, but squaddies being squaddies, they love their own kit, and they you know. So it was like, yeah, I can can have my own chair, can I? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we just apply for a grant and stuff like that. And I was like, right, where do I? <laughs> How but many teams are there in South Wales? Um, in South Wales, I think there's now three, um, but with the, the Ospreys who I play for main, uh, are the main established team. Um, the others are just starting out. So um, there, there's two sides to wheelchair rugby. There's the fours and there's the fives. So the fours is more traditional um, Olympic level um, or Olympic rules then. Um, and then you've got the fives, then, which are de- were developed from the more able-bodied so you've got to play in the fours. You've got to have a problem with both legs and both hands. Um, so you've got to have um, a disability that affects all four limbs, basically. Um, whereas the fives, you can, you know, you can uh, you just have one bad limb or things like that. So or you or you've got like um, a brain injury, but you can still function with all of your limbs. So yeah, it's uh, it's a good sport. It's uh, like you say, it's brutal. Just you just cane your shoulders, <laughs> shoulders and upper back is just like by the by the time you've played a tournament, four game tournament, you're you're done. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely because um, you just sweat. Ospreys do a shitload for, for military, don't they? They do a shitload. For, I didn't realise until last year. When I say a shitload, they do stuff for the military yeah. community, which is more than what I know other. Well, I'm aware of other people doing. Yeah. And <coughs> they did. Um, they started the walk-in rugby last year, didn't they? Because they got the community outreach team there, haven't they? Yeah. As I know this, obviously via Sean, Sean was probably in touch with them. They got the community outreach team there, and they started walk-in rugby for for military veterans. Yeah. Through uh, like Dulles Valley, Swansea Valley, different, different, different around doing it at different clubs. And I didn't realise they had the uh, the wheelchair. Is that specifically for for? Is that the wheelchair rugby, that's for anyone with a disability. It's not just military, right? Yeah, it's anybody. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a civvy team. Um, and they're, they're their own charity. So we're not... Oh. So we're, we're kind of affiliated with the Ospreys and they, uh, they allow us to, um, you know, like use their name and their logo and things like that. And we do a lot of um, integration with <coughs> Ospreys in the community. So um, I think they've just sponsored our new kit and everything like that. But I've... I haven't I haven't managed to get down to training at all this year, um, which is a shame because I used to be there like like a shot. But um, you know my work comes first, and obviously making time for my family as well. It's um, but I try and infill where I can. You know, if they're if they're short on a tournament and things, you go away for the weekend and play. So yeah, it's um, so it's. It's a it's a it's a it's a good thing to get back into you know obviously having a disability and things, you know a lot of people think oh that's it now I can't do anything, but it's not the case you know there's loads and loads and loads of stuff out there, you know disability sport whales are or all over it, so 
Yeah. How did your family um, find the Surviving Hellman documentary? Yeah. You know, the, the missus with me, like, because she's obviously, we've been together since school, so she's been there from the off, and I think it was a bit a bit strange her watching it next to me, because it's always been that separation, um, although she's been through it, it's always been that separation, but um, she was all right, um, it's the first time my kids have, kids have kind of um, seen that side of me as well. So How old are your kids? Um, my eldest is 12, um, the middle one is nine and my youngest is, is six. Yeah. So, um, my eldest, y- y- you know, I kind of feel for a little bit cause he's, he's been through it all, you know, he's been, he's been there through the ups and the downs and the deployments and how old was he like when you, that. um, got blown up then? So he was nine months old, six okay. months, nine months old, um, but again, that kind of threw him into a whirlwind because obviously my mum had to look after him a lot. You, you know, the missus was up and back to the hospital all the time. And um, yeah, because we, we had just been married. We'd probably been married about six months, if that. Um, so we just moved into our pad at, you know, at the Dale. And obviously when when I deployed she went back home because she hadn't had a chance to meet anybody or, or anything like that. So she went back home or to and fro in from, from the, the pad to, to her house. And when I got blown up, kind of threw everything into a bit of a whirlwind, really. So my mum and her mum ended up looking after my, well, Dav at the time, you know, my eldest now a lot. And he was getting thrown from pillar to post. So he didn't really settle very well. Um... But yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a whirlwind for him. Where did they record? Where did they record the interview with you? Was it the house? No, it was down at the hub, um, oh. uh, Forwardy's Lodge. Yeah, so it was down there. So we did all the filming sort of in one day. Well, that's good out of the way then. I did mine yeah. in the front front living room of my parents' place. Yeah, with my dad at the back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit, yeah. Which is a bit weird. Yeah, weird because I, you know. I don't know, <coughs> they probably the same with you, interviewed for a couple of, about, a couple of hours. They didn't use much of the footage, but there's yeah. stuff in there. I remember they were asking me questions. And, I, you know, my, d- my dad was part of the answer. I was talking about my old man, knowing he's out in the kitchen, drinking a brew, pretending he's not listening, but actually yeah. listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did you find that experience of, of doing the actual interview going through? Because he asked some pretty, like, cutting questions. And the other thing is, is when they interviewed us for that, so for people who are not aware Steve and I were on a documentary called Survive. It was called Surviving Helmand. BBC Wales commissioned it. Got released last week. That would be Tuesday, the 9th of November. My yeah. mailman's birthday, funny enough. But it was recorded before the fall of Afghan, yeah. wasn't it? This is the thing. I remember when that when Afghan fell. I remember thinking, "Oh my god, what did I, have I have I given any answers that are going to make me look like an absolute moron in that?" You know, you know yeah. have, I, have I said Afghan never fall? The Taliban never take, take take it back? And I like, yeah. didn't. But. Uh, yeah, how did you find it yourself? I yeah, so my um my interview was done after the fall, funny enough. Oh, was it? Yeah, so oh, right. cuz okay, they cuz they'd done a, a pause for covid and everything like that, you know, when they first started sort of filming and um I remember I'm a, I'm a really positive guy and I don't I, I don't normally do things like that, you know, because I don't <coughs> know how things are going to be taken. You know, they can sometimes they can turn what you've said as a positive and turn it right round into a negative. So I was really, really dubious. 
And I remember, um, is it Steve Humphreys, the the producer? I remember sitting him down and saying, "Listen, I'm not doing the interview if this if this is how it's going to come out because like." And it was a big thing for me as well. So I'd sent a message out to a few of the lads saying, listen, you know, this isn't just my story. It's your story as well. Um, what do you think about me doing the documentary? And they were like, uh, you know, I was expecting, uh, you know, but it wasn't. It was all positive. You know, they said, yeah, do it, you know, because this needs to be talked about. So, yeah, I did I did it. And I remember it was it was a bit of a strange experience, really, Um because I've, I've I've told my story to like schools and things like that because I did a course through Blessma, um, like public speaking. But it was a bit more intimate this one, um, you know, sitting there with a camera in front of your face, you know, and it's weird how they 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 extract some of the emotions out of you. Do you know what I mean when they ask a certain question and you're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, right, okay, how do I answer this? You know, and you're trying to be conservative a little bit as well you know we're not not trying to give too much away but, but also trying to have your own agenda of being positive and you know saying so it was a bit of a it's a bit of a whirlwind to be honest and then when they when they said oh is it is it all right if we come and film your kids and i was like uh, yeah all right <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was um the overall experience was good i quite enjoyed it you know and i've to be honest with you, I felt like a big weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Oh, after. really? Why yeah. is that? I don't know. It's just because, you know, this program is potentially is going to be seen, you know, by a few hundred thousand or a couple of million or, you know, we didn't know at the time. So it's like, right, okay, you know, this is going to be spoken about. And a lot of the people that live around the area as well, you know, a lot a lot of people that live around me aren't ex-military or, or things like that. And th- they've got this perception of what, what happened to you? Do you know what I mean? So I was like, right, okay, they they can watch it and they can get they can get the proper information. So um, yeah, I did that, and then obviously six weeks later, I did my event and things. So by the by the time the documentary came out, I was like, whoa, just just felt like you know ten stone lighter. It was a, it was quite a good feeling. Has it been received well in the local community? Have they said have they anyone said anything to you? No, it's been it's been received really well. You, you know, and I think um, a lot of people didn't realise actually the severity of of what happened, if you know what I mean. So, you know, I like it was touch and go whether I would survive, basically. You know, in that in that in in that instance, and a lot of people didn't know that. You know, they think, oh, okay, he's he, he's walking around now. He must he must it mustn't have been that bad. Do you know what I mean? But you know, initially, I remember. Um, at that time, the medic, he's a he's a friend, and um, one of my one of my good mates, John, who was who was dealing with me, like he's seen the caption of the the picture on the documentary, of um of those who working on me, and I remember at one stage the, the medic looked up at and he went, oh god, yeah, and I remember him looking at that, <laughs> like I was just like, oh brilliant, <laughs> like pulling that faces in. I yeah, don't know, save, save this guy. Yeah. But you're not conscious. But did I remember remembering this wrong? You were conscious initially, weren't you, when you got through blown the, up through the whole thing? Yeah, and yet you were on death door yeah. while being conscious. Yeah, that's not a usual thing, is it? No. Talk to me about that, mate. Yeah, that is so wild. So I remember. If you don't mind. You yeah, 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 yeah. So I remember the detonation of the explosion. What were you in, Scimitar? Uh, Jackal. Jackal. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, Jackal. Yeah. So 
it was a weird experience. Just remember the jackal like lifting off the floor, and everything went into slow motion. Um, but for some reason, I got like swept off my feet rather than getting launched out. Where, what position were you in, Jackal? Um, I was top cover. Okay. Yeah. So, and I was a sixty mil guy as well. So I had sixty mil. I had four sixty mil HE bombs underneath me as well. <laughs> so. Um, Did they go off? N- well, they couldn't find them after. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was. Um, so I remember the whole thing flying through the air, but it was rotating at the same time. Um, and then felt the thud when it landed, and I just remember like as as the smoke was clearing, I could just smell the kerosene and diesel all over me, because uh, the auxiliary tank went up, the main tank went up, the um, the jerry cans on the side went up, so there's just massive amounts of of fuel everywhere, and I would just see my legs sticking out of this hole that this IED's created. You know, it's taken half the vehicle, you, you know, where the top cover. If It was funny because I was facing the other way. Backwards. Yeah, so I was, so where the where the chunk is missing out of the, the side of the wagon, I was I was stood above that. But I traversed and started, because there was a guy on a motorbike, I remember him coming down off the high ground. So we traversed to track him and um, literally detonated. So um, if I was stood... Like literally, like thirty seconds, I would have been, I would have been brown bread. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been here. But um, yeah, so I remember like thinking, and I remember shouting. I was trying to shout over the over my PRR, you know, to the um, to the vehicle in front. But it was just nothing. I could, it was just getting static. Oh, well, after you've been blown up. Yeah. So um, I remember pulling myself out of the wagon. Um, when did you realize that you you feel you like your leg was fucked, or um, like you were fucked, like properly fucked? Because obviously it wasn't just your leg. You were yeah. So, so, so basically, I, I crawled out, crawled out backwards, stood up, and my lid fell off. And I was like, oh, right, okay, because the chin strap had gone. So I was like, oh, fucking, I was like, crap. And I could hear my driver, but I couldn't hear anything at the minute. So I, I, as I looked over, I could see, I could see my driver screaming, and I was like, you couldn't hear him. But I couldn't hear him. But uh, but then as I was looking at his mouth, it was like somebody was turning up the telly. <laughs> And then I, so I, I went over to him and um, and and did his and did his seatbelt and got got him into a sort of position. And then I looked up and I couldn't see my commander. I was like, oh, "What did you crawl over?" No, I walked. I walked over to him, and then I walked over to my commander. Then because I found he, he was he was a bit a bit further away from the vehicle because he had been launched out. Like, kind of woke him up, and then I just remember like stumbling backwards and just like my head had started spinning and I was like, fucking hell, what's going on here? And then ended up on my, on my sort of ass. And then I, w- I remember being on my sort of elbows and then the guy sort of getting to me going, fuck, you're all right, you're all right. All I felt was a little bit of a dead leg, you know, like somebody's like hit you in the side of the leg or, or something like that. So I didn't, didn't really feel it. And then my mate John got to me and he started putting a FFD around my head. I'm like fighting him. I'm like, fuck, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you know, what you? he goes, oh, you got a head injury. I was like, no, I haven't. So basically, as I got swept off, the 50 cal had hit my body armor plate. And then um, it hit my head. So it fractured my eye socket. And the whole part of my eyebrow was all open. And um, yeah, because I thought it was just diesel in my eyes and stuff. But it wasn't. It was blood. And I was trying to like wipe it out of the way. <laughs> so we started doing that. And then the medic got to me. And he, 
you, you kind of like look down the side of my um, down the side of my leg. And remember the old hempcom? Yeah, hempcom, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. my god! What? He pulled pulled a pack of that out, shoved it straight in my leg. Ah, oh, the pain then hit me, and I was like, "Fucking, what are you doing?" <laughs> I was like, "Get off me!" Like that. And I said, oh, "How bad is the leg?" And he, all he did, right? He pulled his hand out and he showed me his glove, like this. And he went, "It's like that." Well, it's, like it's as deep, deep as, as that. Is his, his hand. hand? Yeah. Jesus. And I was like, up to your wrist. Up like, to his wrist. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're sitting there like that, and um, I started going a bit woozy and feeling a bit funny. And I, re- I remember looking at John again. I was like, John, give me a fag, like that. And he was like, Steve, he goes, you, you're covered in diesel and fuel and kerosene. I was like, give me a fucking fag. <laughs> and the, the medic looked at him and he was like, give him a fag. <laughs> <laughs> so he walks off and he and he and he lights a fag. But he lights two. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? He goes, oh, one's for me. <laughs> so, he, you know, you've got to remember as well, like, you know, so my, my driver was trapped as well. So he, um, part of the armoured plate of the, of the footwell of the jackal had lifted and landed on his foot. Oh. So it trapped him in the vehicle. So the, the boys are frantically trying to get him out. What position was the vehicle? Was it on its, was on its side? Oh, it's on its side, right? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so all this is happening. And I just remember, like... I could feel my body shutting down. It was weird. I could feel like all the blood draining from my head. It was, go- it was going funny. Like my arms s- s- kind of stopped working properly. Everything was trying to go into the core. And um, that's the point then where the the medic looked at looked at my mate and he was just like, you know, I hope the bird's going to be here soon. Like, um, Where were you? Where were you in, in uh, Helmand? So we were in Nadi Ali. Um, we were only about 40, 50 kilometers outside of Bastion. Um, Whereabouts in that alley we were? Uh, well, we were heading, we were heading towards Wahid. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wahid, yeah so yeah. we we were heading towards Wahid, um, and yeah, we were about, well, I don't know, we were probably about five, ten kilometers from Wahid at the time. Yeah, and it was, it was, a, so we 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 didn't know what was happening because we had compounds left and right of us at this point. So we were like, oh. and we were. We we were eight vehicle convoy plus um, two A and A wagons as well, so we were we were centre of mass basically, uh, so our course line was split. Um, but luckily, because we were quite close to Bastion, from point of explosion to being on the operating table, forty five minutes. Yeah. Rapid. Yeah, it was quick. It was quick. So um, when I, it, it was another weird experience. I remember like. Losing consciousness on the um, on the mert on the way back in twice, and the second time I woke up with um, pressure on my chest. So basically, my heart on the machines like my heart stopped, and they were about to start CPR, and I I came round again. Jesus, which was a, which was a, a surreal experience, and they they're wheeling so me. So when in. you passed out the second time, you, you fucking died. Yeah, technically, yeah. So um, and then just came round. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, it's, it's mad. I, I, I couldn't really comprehend it. I was like, oh, no, they, they were just doing it as a precaution. Why did your body decide to kick back in? Why, why is that? No, like, I, why yeah. did your brain go, so not I, now, I, not this time? Yeah, so like I, like I said in the documentary, I had a photo of my... Um, so I made John sort of go in the back of my body armour. And I said, like, there's a photo in there um, of, my, of my wife and baby. And uh, she, he pulled it out of me. And I didn't let go of that. Until I got put to sleep, yeah, which was, it was, uh, 
And that's the first time I've told anybody that. <laughs> what, that you didn't let go of it? Yeah, so first time, like, on the documentary, nobody else knew that, not even not even my wife. About the photo? Yeah. So, um, and did, did your wife not realise that until she actually watched it? I told her, because I was looking for this photo, <laughs> and knew one of us had it. So I was like, oh, I've, I've said this in, in, in the documentary. <laughs> Have you got this photo? <laughs> and she was like, oh, I think so. And then we, we, we found it amongst all the other photos, so... Yeah, I remember them wheeling me into the... That's brownie in, points, that, mate. Yeah. Brownie points for life, I <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't happy about it going on live telly or the photo. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember them wheel, wheeling me into the roll three. Um, obviously, we had the Aria fireman taking the stretches in and stuff like that. And this, this American doctor came running out. And he was like, have you had any pain relief? And I was like, no, because I've got a head injury. And he just stuck a needle straight into my neck. Oh or ketamine. <laughs> like that so by this point now I'm off my nut and they're putting me into the CT scanner talking about hallucinating I was going mad then eh? I was like it was like flipping get me out of here <laughs> literally because I was covered head to toe in diesel and, and kerosene they had to flipping wash me down before going into theatre so I had my initial wash down and by this point like I'm in, I'm in absolute clip you know I don't know whether I'm coming or going I've got blood but blood being attached to me i got fluids and all sorts so yeah so the bed bath for me is she's like we're we're gonna cut the rest of your clothes off you is that all right and i was like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. what was the extent of your injuries um so i had um so obviously a severe shrapnel wound to my right thigh um it's weird i didn't break a bone uh, apart from my eye socket so the piece of shrapnel had gone in Missed the femoral artery, but hit the other two main highways. And the medic said that when it when when his hand was in there, he could just feel it hitting, hitting his hand. What the, the blood? Uh, the, the artery. Oh, like really? He was like pumping so, out. Yeah. So you know how big the pieces of hemcom are. Yeah. I had two and a half of them in in the leg, and it was still like not not sufficient enough. So um, and he couldn't put any more in because it would have caused extensive damage because obviously it. It's thermal. So, yeah, we did that. And um, literally, I woke up seven hours later from theatre. Yeah. My dri- my driver, Jock, like, he, 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 I think he was convinced that I wouldn't make it. So, um, I remember, I remember them wheeling me sort of out, and he's, he's, he's like right there. <laughs> so they, they, they brought me out, and they didn't, they didn't put me in the, um, in the coma straight away. Um, so th- they brought me out, they brought me back to the bedside and, um, you know, the banter started then, you know, being at the bedside, I had like six different bags of things hanging around me, you know, off my head on pain relief. And, um, Jock was like, Oh, you coming for a fag? <laughs> I was like, well, I'm, 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 I'm like tied to the bed. So, um, then the padre turned up. And I was like, oh, this is bad news. Oh, no. <laughs> How did that go? It was all right. So we, oh, my we, God. Yeah, what did he say? Yeah. He was like, um, so they've, they've asked if um, you want to ring home and tell and tell everybody that you've been injured, or do you want me to do it? And I was like, well, if, if the Padre rings back, they're going to think I've died. So I'll I'll do it. While you're off your tits. Yeah. yeah. So they give, they give me the sat phone, and I'm, uh, I remember ringing my missus first, and she just ends up going into hysterics before I've even said anything. I said, um, I've been blown up. And that was it. Couldn't get any sense out of it then, so I hung up. 
<laughs> and then I ring my mum, and she does the same. And then I hung up, and I was just like, you know, I can't get any sense out of them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I thought I was tripping by this point. I was like, what's going on? So did that, and um, my dad was worked worked for the ambulance. So he's ambulanceman. So he's he, this is a story from him. He's going down the motorway to the hospital, gets a phone call. On a job. Yeah, yeah. gets a phone call from, from obviously from my mum. So he rings control. Control have got a car waiting for him at the hospital to bring him back. And they said, we'll give you blue lights all the way to, all the way to Sally Oak. And he's like, no, he goes, I've got to go and pick up my daughter-in-law and things like that. So while well, they're back home doing that, by this point now, Jock has managed to get me into a wheelchair. <laughs> in, but were you in Bastion? In Bastion, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's managed to get me in a wheelchair, although the nurses have told him not to. He's got me into a wheelchair and he's piled all of these <laughs> all of these bags of things on top of me. And I'm like, so he's and he's convinced the Padre. So how we've got fags is the Padre's <laughs> gone to the Naffy and bought a load of fags. <laughs> this is brilliant. So uh, so to get to the smoking area in, in the in the hospital, you have to go down this wooden ramp. So I like I'm in shit state. My head's all swollen because I've got you know, head injury and that as well. How long after the explosion's this? Um, about the same day yeah about nine hours <laughs> <laughs> get to that smoke fit go for a bite yeah. <laughs> what's the worst that can happen so he turns me into the smoking area and the nurse is there standing staring at him like how have you managed to get him into the By the, I've got a bandage right my wound is still open because they won't close in Bastion because oh of infection my God. and I'm sitting there like that alright <laughs> so I have the fag and my blood pressure plummets so they're like oh, so they wheel me back up and that they get me on the flight then by this point. So the, the reason that we went for a fag is because the Aeromed was coming to fly us back to the UK. So we have to get that one in there quickly because I didn't know when I was going to have a fag neck. So we, we, we did that and <laughs> my blood pressure dropped that low then. They put me in a medical coma then on the flight um, and then woke me up. Then How did they tell you they were going to do that? Did they, did they tell you they're going to put you in a car? Yeah. So they, they or they just like yeah, spring it on you? Yeah, just just wait for him to pass out. Yeah. Then, <laughs> uh, yeah, what happened there? No, so my blood pressure was dropping on the flight. Um, <coughs> Why was it dropping, do you know? Just because I'd lost so much <coughs> blood on the ground. Um, so it was dropping and because of altitude and everything like that, it was really messing with, with my vitals. So um, they made the call then to to sort of put me to sleep, which was good because I don't... I, you, you know... On an aeromed, they like stack you up on stretchers, so you're like the next. I was like one from the top, so there was another stretcher above me, and it was like you probably had about that much room. <laughs> it was yeah, like a stack of biffs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't know they yeah. did that. Yeah. How many of you are on there? Um, a tri start you on something like that? No, we're on a C17. Oh, oh, yeah. right, okay. So this is how my luck runs, right? <laughs> so by this point now. Just before they put me into this medical-induced coma, hydraulics go on the flight. <laughs> so they said, we've, we normally land in Birmingham, but we're going to have to land in Bryce. I was like, right, okay, why? The hydraulics are gone on the plane. <laughs> I was like, brilliant. So we, they said, we've either got enough hydraulics to get the landing gear down or, or brake. So we're going to have to pull the landing gear down manually and use the hydraulics to break. I was like, brilliant. <laughs> so I've just been blown up. <laughs> I'm potentially going to be in, a, in an aeroplane crash. 
So I was like, oh, just, and then they made the call to put me to sleep. So I was like happy with that. So, um, yeah. But you know what though? It, it was a surreal experience. It was, but like I was saying, when we were talking to the patrons, it was like, as in on the pre-podcast, on the pre-podcast yeah, people yeah. listening, yeah. Yeah, so um, everybody needed to be where they were. And it was it was it was just smooth. What do you mean? So, like with our training and everything, obviously we drilled, you know, getting blown up and, you know, but everybody was where they were supposed to be, and it was it was commanded well. It was everything was right. And I've got no doubt if we'd been opened up by the Taliban as well at the same time, it would have been dealt with. Do you know what I mean? So you know, I've got to, I've got to give a shout out to the boys for that because they, you know, it was. Um, and there were secondaries on the ground as well. So my commander landed ne- nearly on top of a secondary. Yeah, so he, he was a lucky. But the guys in the, in the instinct, like, you you know, if it, it was a weird one because if they hadn't reacted the way they did and got to me quickly, I probably would have died. But they they put their life on the line, basically, without having to clear up to us properly. You know, so they just swung, swung the, next, the closest wagon round to get <coughs> to us. And they did, and... You know that's that's how I'm here today. So, you know, cheers, guy. Cheers, lads. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, you have got that unusual perspective of having been conscious for, for most of it. The human body is amazing, isn't it? Oh. You get blown up like that, and then your adrenaline is doing such a mega job that you're able to walk yourself over to the other guys, yeah. get them like try and get them squared away before then the adrenaline starts peeling off and then you're yeah. spanking but still don't realise you're fucked no <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm not arguing with the medic what are you doing <laughs> yeah what was, what was and then you're trying to look then but it's, it's funny like I remember I was wearing um, a North Face 700 uh, TOG jacket it was a, one of my proudest possessions it cost me like 250 quid this jacket did and being being they call me a cardi because I'm from Cardigan and tight with my money, West Wallians. <laughs> so um, I'm like, I'm, I'm adamant now. I'm like, do not cut this jacket off me. <laughs> and they're like, well, we got to check. I said, don't cut the jacket off me. I said, you can cut the body armor off, but don't cut the jacket. In all fairness, they 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 took they they undid it and everything like that. And I was still wearing it when I was rolled into the hospital. So I was like, right, okay. So they, they did that. I, in Birmingham then, when I got released from hospital, I went to collect all my items that had come back with me from Afghan, and the jacket's still there. Although it's humming of diesel, it's, it's still in a carrier bag, uncut. My dad hung it in his shed, <laughs> and it's still there now. There's <laughs> shrapnel everywhere in it. <laughs> it's clean off. Yeah. Yeah, so like with the injuries and that, obviously I had the severe um, shrapnel wound to my right leg, and I had a severe shrapnel wound to my head. Um, I've got permanent damage to my head as well. Um, I've severed two two vital nerves just in the eye socket. Um, so I've got no feeling here, sensory-wise, of the temple, yeah, and, and, and you know, to the base. But um, if I hit it or anything, flipping out, it drops me nearly. Yeah. Why is that? Just because of, like, the... Um, like, there's, like, a neuroma, which is, like, um, like a lump of scar tissue over the top of the end of the nerve. Um but it just sent because the nerve comes out of here, goes all the way up, and then goes into the back of the head, the back of the skull. So um, yeah, that's uh, sensitive. But I've had I've already had one operation to try and 
try and rectify it or try and heal it. But I've got to have another one now, you know, coming up soon. To a nerve graft, to a, a nerve from my hand into my head. So, huh. yeah. Really? Technology, yeah. I didn't know they could do that. Yeah, nerve graft. Yeah. You put like, you graft anything. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. That's fucking mad. And I was lucky because of the, um, I've got a very little scar in there. That's because there was facial surgeons in, in Bastion at the time. So while while they were dealing with my leg, these surgeons came in and made sure, like, th- they were plastic surgeons. So, you know, I um, didn't do anything else with the looks, but <laughs> yeah, they, they probably squared me away. So, Were you in, um, what was Salio like? What Salio like on that ward? Were you, was it... Were the other guys around you, or people around you, might have been girls in there, Compass Menace? Yeah, yeah. Was it depressing in there, or what? Was it? How did you find it? Oh, it's a weird, weird one. It was, because on my... So I so when they pull you out of intensive care, they put you on to um, Ward 1 or Ward A, or Bay 1, or Bay A, I can't remember the name. Um, I was the only one in there with all my limbs, because it was during that, it was during the, like a, the bloodiest time in Afghan. So I was the only one on that on that bay with what all my. What year was it? What year? Uh, two thousand and ten. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was a bit. I felt like a bit of a fraud because I'm lying there with all my limbs, and I'm like looking around me, and like you know, there's guy next to me with three limbs missing. There's a guy opposite me with both his legs missing. Another guy sitting opposite, both his legs and blind. I'm like, flipping hell. But they were. <laughs> The, the two surgeons were arguing whether they were going to take my leg off or not, you know, so it was that damaged. So, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a weird one. And then obviously as you get better, the, you move down in bays then. So you you then you move into like a bay with guys that have like got a broken back or, you know, broken their legs or missing a finger or something like that um, or been shot. And then eventually then when you're ready, then you're, you're discharged. Um yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's a weird one. It's uh, it's quite gruesome. It's quite horrific. In what way? Just to look around and see see guys in that sort of mess. It's um, I remember like my my mum, missus, and dad. Bearing in mind, you know, my dad had worked for the ambulance service for nearly twenty five years at this point. You know, so he's seen some pretty horrendous stuff, but. They briefed them saying, you know, just brace yourself when you walk in. And there's a distinct smell as well, you know, of like almost like infection. Oh, so it's, yeah, yeah you c- and it's it's on you all the time and you can't can't really escape it. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an experience. Mm. When did they, uh, how did was the decision made to take your leg? When did you lose the leg then? Um, I forgot you didn't lose it immediately. Yeah, so 2016, I lost a leg, um, but I'd had. You so had constant dramas over it, did you? Yeah, so I'd, I'd, in, in total, before losing the leg, I had 23 operations on it. Um, but bearing in mind now, so I'd recovered in Headley Court, I'd been in Headley Court and, d- and did all of that, and I was given the choice. The, the documentary kind of like skipped over it a little bit, and didn't really <coughs> say what actually happened, so I did actually redeploy. Um, oh right yeah so I, I got fit again and redeployed um, back on Herrick 16 deployed there and um, what year was that? Uh, 2012 um, so 18 months later pretty much I bet you I bet your family was chuffed with that one. Oh yeah Jesus. I went down like a lead balloon <laughs> 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 yeah. 
remember sitting there saying like, um, I'm redeploying back to Afghan. And they were like, what? And then they ended up <laughs> big family argument. And I was like, well, it's my decision. So, you know, you can kick off at each other all you want. I'm going. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, so I decided to do that. It was either that or, or, or just get medically discharged. And I wasn't ready, do you know what I mean? So I, I fought, you know, tooth and nail to, to, to get fit again. Um, which I did. I was I was ba- I banged in the CFT in an hour thirty five, <laughs> so I was like, ah, right, I'm ready. <laughs> but it was a bad move. It w- I wasn't I wasn't physically ready. Y- you know, my leg wasn't nowhere near strong enough. Um, so we deployed on Herrick sixteen. We were up up a Gresh Valley. Um, moved into a, a new OP that was established there, and then I, I think four or five months, um, ended up going on R and R. And as I was coming back off R&R, my leg just went, you know, and I remember getting off the, the heli to, re- to go back into the OP and I looked down and my, my leg was just twice the size of the other one. I was like, shit, that's not good. So I ended up doing an about turn, getting back on the heli, <laughs> going back to um, Bastion where they did an ultrasound and one of the, um, the stents that they'd put in to repair the artery I'd, was leaking. And it come undone basically. What's a stent? Sorry, so it's just, it's just um, uh, like a sheathing to to repair the artery, like a protective coat. Okay. And to hold it open, so that started leaking and and things like that. So um, I was bleeding out again, effectively. So back to the UK, more operations. And at that point, then I knew, like you know, my career was over. Do you know what I mean? So um, yeah, started the ball rolling with that. Uh, that was two thousand and thirteen. Um, and then I got better again and ended up doing CP in Iraq. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on the, um, I was on the FCO contract over there, British embassy. So in Baghdad. Did, yeah. So did that, did that for a bit along, along and we doing different jobs in London and, and things like that. Um, and then enough got enough. It, it finally caught up with me because I kept always putting myself in dangerous situations. Anywhere I'd go, it'd be, it'd be dangerous. So, um, yeah, so I, I remember just sitting there going, right, you've got to pull the plug on this now. You know, you've got to start putting your family first. You know, they've backed you up all of these years. Now you've got to start returning the favour. So, um, and I knew deep down my leg wasn't going to hold up forever. So, yeah. And then I remember, when was it now? August 2016. I was sitting at home, legs up on the, on the coffee table and just felt this massive pain shoot up from my from my scar straight up into my body straight your scar yeah, yeah from my leg and straight up into my chest I thought I'd had a blood clot that had gone gone straight to my lung because I couldn't breathe I was like fucking missus was out I had to ring the ambulance myself ambulance turned up and they were like, like looked at the leg and they were like shit you gotta go to hospital took me straight to Morriston Hospital then um, they were convinced it was a blood clot did a scan and they were like no, you're all right. <laughs> I was like, there's something wrong. So after two in and fro in and another operation, um, they found out that basically two two nerves had touched each other. and um, In the leg? Yeah. Two nerves had touched each other and effectively short-circuited and killed the leg. So it's um, weird, like, yeah. So my foot, my foot just, like, it was like somebody had turned it off and my foot just went flop like that. And I couldn't feel it, couldn't, couldn't do anything with it. So, um, and the pain was horrendous, like all the time. 
it got to the point where I was on so much pain relief that the anaesthetist, before they took my leg off, thought I was lying. I was like, I'm not lying. This is how much I'm on. And he was like, he goes, you shouldn't even be standing on this much. Medication, you mean? Yeah. So gabapentin was a nerve pain tablet. I was on 4,600 milligrams of that a day. Like that. And they were just like, <laughs> flipping out. So um, I went to see my surgeon. The surgeon in Morriston had refused to take it off. On uh, what grounds? Why? He said, oh, it's, it's a healthy limb. And I was like, are we looking at the same limb? Because it was blue. And it was getting mottled. Yeah. So um, because it was not very good blood, blood flow to the foot, it eventually gangrene would have set in. So um, I overruled him and I went to back to my surgeon in Salisbury. And I said, listen... Done, he's done 80% of my operations. And I said, listen, I want my leg off. I go, I've already spoke to my family. I've already spoke to people, you know, that matter. And they've all come to the same agreement. And uh, he goes, I agree with you. When should we do it? And I was like, oh, what? no no arguing. <laughs> you know, like, like I don't have to like fight my case. And he was like, no. He's like, when do you want to do it? So I was like, well, as soon as, as soon as you can, six weeks later, I was on the, I was on the slab, having, uh, having my leg off, and I, uh, haven't, haven't really looked back since. Yeah, it's been, uh, been a bit of a journey, but, um, yeah, like I said though, I do it all over again. I do all that over again because it's, it's molded me to like where I am now. Um, but like I, I use myself as um a tool in effect where i've got to be a good role model to the people around me you know because now whether we like it or not the guys who have lost limbs out in afghan and and you know have been severely injured when we're role models now to the next generation of guys coming through you know saying like you can you can do things even when you when, when you are fucked basically so um and that's been kind of like my driving force you know, to, to, to always be a better person. That's a good fucking point, that is, you know. Yeah. O- on the last podcast, I was talking to um, a guy called Richard Sharp. Yeah. Uh, Ex-boot neck officer. Really good guy. And we were discussing, we were discussing, you know, how uh, the sort of victim mentality or uh, of, of, you know, some aspects of the military veteran community and... And, um, you know, the way pe- how people conduct themselves, especially online. And yeah. you raised a really good point there. You know, it's like uh, people flipping kick off anything these days. And you get a lot of people who think they're owed everything in the world because they did this, out or the other, or because of this injury or that illness or whatever. And you made a good point, mate. Yeah. It's like role, your role models, not only the people around you now, like family, for example, yeah. the obvious ones and kids and all that. Yeah. But it's the next generation of Soldier, sailors, and yep. airmen. It's a really good point. Yeah, I, I mean, you should. If I can think of, you know, people now who think who are prominent ex-military online or in the news or whatever, and they think, what is a a young potential recruit thinking when they look at that person? Yeah, is, is that the is that the kind of person you want as a role model, or is it not? Yeah. You know, yeah. It's a really good point. I hadn't re- I hadn't thought of before. Mm. I'm like you, you know, military guys. We all, we always want to push ourselves, don't we? Do you know what I mean? You know, or or the majority of us do. You know, you get a, a lot of guys that would rather not do it. But you know, I don't know how much more I've got left in me. Do you know what I mean? Physically, you know, mentally, I'll go forever. But 
physically i've got to be realistic like because you know from from my injuries i damaged every vertebrae in my back when i got blown up and i didn't find that out till two years ago oh really um, yeah. so there was more to it what did you do to your back then yeah so um t11 and 9 are um off they've been slipped basically um and i've got have you heard of schwartz nodes they're like little um what do you call them? Like like ulcers, not ulcers, um, like cysts yeah. on each ver- on each disc, all the way from from my coccyx up to up to C one. Yeah, so it's um, you know I've got that to contend with. Um, I need a knee re- knee and hip replacement because obviously on the good side. On the good side, yeah. Um, you know, I probably I probably get another five years out of my knee and my hip until yeah. I'm, I'm until I'm in clip. Not if I keep smashing, flipping four hundred laps around this running track, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, maybe maybe two and a half years then. <laughs> but it's a you know it's just something that you know my personal preference is something that I want to do to you know show others that it can be done. You know I mean, it doesn't matter. You, you know, you'll always find find something to do. You know whether it's mentally or physically. So um, yeah, that's why. Like four months after the amputation, I'd been walking about six weeks, three weeks fully. Um, I did a twenty-six mile sponsored walk. Yeah, which was horrendous. Um, physically, it wasn't wasn't a great thing to do. Mentally, it was the hundred percent right thing to do. So um, yeah, I did that. And it by the end, but so I had only st- I had only aimed to do one mile. You know, as a, as a new amputee, a mile is quite a quite a big feat. So excuse the pun, um, but <laughs> so I did I did the um, I did the first mile, did the second mile. I thought, oh, I feel all right, yeah. Did the fifth mile. Thinking, all right, it's starting to hurt a little bit now. I got to mile ten, and I was like, fucking, I'm I'm in bits here, but I'm committed now. I've got the bug. I've got to finish. Got to yeah, and every oh, I was horrendous. I, and I, I'd, I'd broken skin by this point on my stump, and I was you know like where you get that blister, and you feel it go, and you're like oh yeah, shit, the skin's just gonna peel off now. And I I got to mile twenty, and there's a photo in the documentary of me leaning on the misses like that with my head down, like that. I wanted to throw the towel in, so obviously you know about the jack wagon. <laughs> So we pulled into a lay-by, mile 20 this is now, so it's quite a big stop. And uh, I was leaning against the hedge before I was leaning on on the missus, and the minibus turned up. And, like, two people turned around to me. It was like, oh, you can get on the minibus now. You know, you, look, you've you've done amazing. Like, and I'm, all that's going through my head is I am never getting on that jack wagon. I'm not doing it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, just for my, my personal sanity. Like, I'll never forgive myself. So... <laughs> I said, right, if I can take two more steps, I'm not stopping. Uh, first step, oh, I was agony. Second step was probably worse than the first one, but I'd done two steps. So in my head, I was like, right, I've got, I've got to go. So, um, yeah, ended up walking six miles without stopping. And that was, that was probably until the 400 for 457, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Yeah, it looked like somebody had poured a kettle over my stump. For the end, yeah. The value of the value of putting yourself through mental or physical hardship regularly 
at whatever level cannot be un- like it cannot be overstated. It, it just cannot be. Um, no, it's, like, it's just an. It, it's something I've only really discovered the value. I think regularly small stuff really discovered the value of over the last couple of years, and it and when I say discovered the value of it, the value of it is that you you are proving value to yourself. Yeah, you proving yourself to be valuable because you you're willing to you're willing to endure hardship out of your own choice. Yeah. Out of your own choice, you're 400 laps, you're 26 miles. Yeah. Out of your own choice. Yeah. And so, it, uh, what you get from that, you get confidence, you get a sense of achievement, you get a sense of value, you get, you know, you, you're being a role model. Yeah. Like you're saying there to people. You're showing people that things, you can achieve stuff, even with people who have, who have the most difficult of circumstances. Yeah. And uh, like I was saying earlier, like if I've got to do something like that, this sort of every year or every couple of years, just to hit the reset button, just so I, so I, I ground myself. So I, when I go through these journeys and when I go through like the, the, like the, the mental robustness and the resilience and stuff like that, it just, I just remind myself of who I am and why am I, why, why I'm doing it. And you know what? What do I want to give back to somebody? You know, somebody watching me do something like that. What are they going to get out of it? You know, I've already proven to myself that I can I can push myself that hard. But is it, what is it showing other people? You know, if you've got somebody there that's really struggling, even if it's struggling mentally or physically, or got a disability, they see something like that, then they can they can go well. If he can do it, then I can do it, or I can do something. So maybe next time I do something, they'll come and support me. You know, even if it's for one lap, or you know, even if it's for you, you know, just to, to say hi. Um, I, I've come to come to cheer you on. You know, so that's that's a big part of why um, why I do it. So yeah, it's um, it's been a it's been a hell of a journey. Yeah, I've done about four hundred charity miles now since being an amputee. Um, and I've pro- uh, you know I've got much more left in me, me yet. I've got to have a break now. <laughs> I've been told by everybody, right? You've got to slow down and have a break, <laughs> you know. But um, but yeah, we're just trying to look look to the future, see what see what's sort of going on um, with with that. But um, I just I kind of like draw on my past a lot um, with regards to like how I want to be treated but my my dad passed away in april last year and he um he always had this saying treat people like you want to be treated you know and that was one of his and he and he used to say it in welsh you know i can't repeat it because it's um because i don't really speak welsh but he used to say it in such a way where it was like flipping out it really hit home you know or he said if you don't um if you can't do somebody a good one don't do them a bad one you know and that that really sits with me you know um, that's a good saying yeah I've never heard that before yeah and he used to he used to combine the two sayings in Welsh and it was this phrase and nobody can remember it <laughs> but it but it was so powerful when he when he spoke even um, he, he spoke once and the, the, there was an MP in earshot and he was like whoa can, can, can you repeat that <laughs> and he said it and he's like oh, he goes I'm going to use that <laughs> that was funny but yeah so he was um and I kind of like 
always wanted to be like him, not physically be like him, but have his same emulate him. Yeah, you know. And um, uh, funny the other day, somebody said, "He goes, you're just like your dad," which is like, oh, right, okay, I've I've done something right then, you know, because he was well respected, well, y- you know, looked up on, like, so, um, yeah, because he uh, he saved my life more than more than once. Yeah, sounds like a good man. Yeah. Um, tell me, uh, we got a few minutes left, right? Yeah. Tell me about Woody's Lodge. So. Where what do they do? Where are they doing it? So Woody's Lodge is um, a social hub for veterans and emergency services and their families. So we support. Um, oh, for emergency services as well. Yeah, I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we um, we look after emergency services um, and their families, which is uh, you know we find it's it works the same. You know, veterans, emergency services, we kind of cut from the same cloth. You know, we we join up to help. We you know, and and to make a difference. And yeah, so we, we the bond is there. So how we help is, um, like I said, we're a social hub where veterans can get together and be around like-minded people. Um, and uh, we we also have support officers as well, and that can deal with benefits, pension inquiries, um, housing, and things like that. But we're we we class ourselves as a signposting charity. So we work closely with different organisations, different charities, local authorities to get the help that the veteran needs. So it's a one-stop shop, basically. Um, so they only have to tell their story once and we can then get the support that they need because it can be you know, frustrating or you know, um, detrimental to a veteran if he has to say a story over and over again if he doesn't, doesn't want to so, or she doesn't want to. So... Um, yeah, that's that's kind of what we're, so we're based across the whole of Wales right now. So we've got um our main head office and our hub is in Barry, which is based on the Amelia Trust farm. Um then we've got um Western Mid Wales where I'm the project manager for the area. Um we're based in Ceredigion, um Llandesil, Um and we've got 11 acre small holding there as well. And then North Wales then the main hub there is Colman Bay. Um, but then there's 12 satellite sessions that, that run there throughout the month, every month. So, you know, the likes of like Rill, Wrexham, Conway, um, you know, all the all the main locations in, in North Wales. I can't remember them all off the top of my head. But um, and that's and that's, you know, basically what we do. Um, and we're quite unique as well because we support the families. So we, we run days and that for the families. So like... Um, we have one for um, like a, a packed lunch day every we- uh, every other Wednesday, um, which is um, partners um, and carers and children, so they can come and um, have a have a lunch and things like that away from their veteran or you know or their their spouse basically, um, and they can come and enjoy sort of a bit of free time away from them. But we just try and encourage green space all the time because our locations, we've got green spaces, like we've got 11 acres down in West Wales where we've got gardening projects going on, um, polytunnel projects. You know, we're, we're renovating a cottage at the minute as well. So, um, yeah, that's just just a meeting place and a, and a safe environment for veterans and emergency services. That's good, mate. What is the uh, website? So the website is um, www.woodyslodge.org. 
Um, and we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. So, Mega. And how can people follow you? You're on Twitter, aren't you? You're on Instagram. I'm on. I'm on. Yeah. So Instagram is Callsign Romeo. On Instagram, um, Twitter is Steve. Why Callsign Romeo? Resilience. Like yeah. it. Like it. Like it. Yeah. Is there a br- is there a brand coming there? Eh? Uh, I'm 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 looking to do a bit of um, motivational stuff with with individuals, um, just to help them through some some stuff and you know just to yeah to help build their resilience. You know, knowledge is only as good as if you pass it on. Yes, so. that's another saying. Steve, you're banging about, <laughs> banging about. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, absolutely bang on. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so my twi- my Twitter is uh, Steve O. So Steve Oscar Whiskey 2523. Got it. And then um, Facebook is just Steve Owen. Sweet. Yeah. Anything we haven't covered that you want to cover? No, it's We've good. Done it, we? Yeah. It's been a good chat, mate. Really yeah, it's been it. good. Yeah, me. Good. Yeah. Sweet. Right. Let's, uh, let's go meet Mr. Michael Barnes. Yeah. Cheers, dude. That's it. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can become a H Hour patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts or go on to the podcast website and um, just hit become a patron or just Google it H Hour podcast patron and you'll find it there. Support me that way. I really would appreciate it. And you've become part of a niche little group of uh, of uh, other H Hour patrons. Access to some private areas, private collaborative groups, and all sorts of other stuff. All the details on the website on uh, patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Another shout out to the sponsors, Rugby for Heroes, sponsored the podcast today. They've got more events coming up to raise money for military charities. They've got two events in January coming up. I'm not sure if the beans have been spilled yet fully on those details. I know the Supper Club has been shared. I think it's been shared. That's mid-Jan. And there's another event in January which has not been shared yet, but I'm sort of telling you about it now. End of Jan. End of Jan. Put it in your diary. Rugby for Heroes event at the end of Jan. Uh, Rugbyforheroes.org is the website. Uh, On social media, they're at rugby number four. Heroes, thank you to Mike and uh, everybody. Rugby heroes for all that you do, supporting the military community and the rugby community. Also sponsoring the podcast today with the Aardvark Group, who provide defence and security solutions for a complex world. They develop and deliver highly impactful technical solutions through the deployment of innovative technologies, techniques, services, and people. The best people are at Aardvark Group. Awesome people at Aardvark Group. A significant percentage of the Aardvark Group's workforce are ex-military. They've been rocking and rolling since 1982, saving lives, protecting people and assets around the world. They also have an online shop where you can go and pick up some kit if you work in a post-conflict zone. It may help you, you may need it. Trauma packs and stuff like that. There's also, obviously, Aardvark Group merchandise. Aardvark Group for the website. And when you check out at the, at the shop, get uh, put in the discount code H-H-O-U-R. H-H-O-U-R you will get a discount exclusively for HR listeners. Also sponsoring the podcast today with DevSock. Surround yourself with like-minded people who enjoy fizz, who care about others, who want to improve themselves on a daily basis. Do it. That's DevSock, the development society. Also, go to the shop, check out the shop, devsock.shop. And while you're on that website, 
sign up for the Daily Waves newsletter. Get all the gen, relevant gen, straight to your inbox on a daily basis. Invites to events. Invites to help improve yourself, improve your situation. Whether you think you've got a good situation or not, why not try and better it? Everyone wants to be a little bit better, a little bit better off, a little bit, um, a little bit happier, a little bit healthier. DevSock can help you do that. DevSock.shop for the website. Sign up for the Daily Waves newsletter and follow them on social media. Just look for the Development Society. Finally, sponsoring the podcast with Combat Cigars. The first British military veteran-owned cigar company in the UK. The only British military veteran-owned cigar company in the UK. When you're thinking of cigars for your event, when you're thinking of buying cigars for anything, when you're thinking of cigars in general, don't just think cigars. Think combat cigars. Think combat cigars. Buy veteran-owned. Okay, our cigars are rolled by a family who have been doing it for rolling cigars. That is for two hundred years. These cigars are fucking incredible. Even if I do sit out so myself, I'm one third of this company of Combat Cigars. Very glad I'm part of it. It has surpassed all my expectations. The cigars incredible. I know several people who now default to Combat Cigars when they want a proper, good quality smoke. Suitable for connoisseurs or people new to cigar smoking. Go to CombatCigars.co.uk and get your cigars. That's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of my H-Hour patrons. If you're a H-Hour patron listening to this, I truly appreciate you. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. I truly appreciate you too. Stay safe. Until the next time, out. <laughs>